I wanted to welcome everyone to the NAM Scholars in Diagnostic Excellence Expert Introduction Podcast. Today we're talking about affecting change in diagnostic excellence. My name is Jessica Malpas and I'll be hosting this episode. I'm an associate professor at the University of Virginia School of Nursing and in the School of Medicine Department of Pediatrics. I'm also a nurse by clinical background and a researcher at the intersection of implementation of predictive analytics for early detection and diagnosis of clinical deterioration. Today, I'm just super excited and honored to introduce our guest, Dr. Chris Goschel. There are many aspects of Dr. Goschel's career that I would like to highlight before we get going. Dr. Chris Goschel is a system leader at MedStar Health as assistant vice president in the MedStar Institute for Quality and Safety and the inaugural director of the Center for Improving Healthcare Diagnosis. As you can probably tell, she is keenly interested in cultivating clinical and administrative leadership to improve the science of healthcare delivery and improving diagnostic processes. She's also a professor in the Georgetown University School of Medicine, and Dr. Goschel also serves as faculty at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Her professional trajectory includes significant and diverse healthcare leadership experiences as a critical care nurse, as a hospital executive, and as founder and first executive for the Keystone Center for Patient Safety and Quality. She's also been appointed as an advisor to the World Health Organization, and she's contributed to large-scale improvement projects globally and ARC-funded initiatives that have spread bloodstream infection reduction to every state in the United States and Puerto Rico. Dr. Goschel has published numerous articles and book chapters related to quality and patient safety, and she also participated in the National Academy of Medicine Committee that released the Prismatic Report, Improving Healthcare Diagnosis, as a part of the Crossing the Quality Chasm series. So I'm so excited to talk with Dr. Goschel today about her impactful work and wanted to extend a warm welcome to her on this podcast. So Dr. Goshal, I've hit a lot of your highlights, and there are numerous, so I've edited that down, but can you give me, in your own words, a little bit more about your background and your career, and specifically how you discovered your own research interests? Sure, thanks, and please feel free to call me Chris. Probably the most interesting thing for me as I reflect back on my career is that I wanted to do well for patients, and as a new RN, that absolutely focused on the bedside care that I was providing. As I became more sophisticated in my care delivery, I began to see things that weren't quite the way I thought they should be. And so I pursued opportunities for nursing leadership positions. I never aspired to be a health system leader or to focus on diagnostic excellence, but I've always been I will say, curious and inquisitive. I grew up in a household with seven kids, not a lot of money, but parents who convinced me that there was nothing any one of us couldn't do if we put our minds to it. And so with that sort of background, I've just always been looking at what's on the horizon. If we knew a little bit more about something, how could care be better for patients? I can remember the names and faces of many, 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 many patients of mine throughout the years. And it wasn't always because we provided great care. Sometimes it was because I was left wondering what else we could have done. I think that leads to this whole section on affecting change. And you're known for several areas of your impactful work. 
I wanted to learn more about your ICU and bloodstream infection work that was supported by ARC and the steps that were required to get there. The bloodstream infection work really took root because I'm a voracious reader and I read about some work that had happened at Hopkins to kind of reduce bloodstream infection rates. And I thought, well, why couldn't we do that everywhere? The part of me that way back to that thing I said in terms of growing up thinking there was nothing I couldn't do, I reached out to Peter Pronobost cold. He didn't know me. I didn't know him. Said, it's great. You can do that at Hopkins, but why don't we figure out if we can do that in my state? My state's like a little microcosm of the country. I just sparked his curiosity. He said that afterwards. He had no idea who I was. He kind of thought I was a little bit loony at the time, but I'm a firm believer in start where you are. Start where you are. I meet people who are like, I want to do this big national project. It's like, great. What have you done locally? Well, not, not too much yet. In the ICU work, we had intensive care units that said, we can't do this in our whole unit. It's like, great, then start with one patient on one shift with one physician or one nurse provider that's willing to try this thing. Just start where you are and you will learn what will work in your organization. And clearly, the 108 hospitals that participated in that Michigan project adapted the work to fit their local culture, but it demonstrated for me, and I think for the Hopkins team that was working on it, that really good ideas put in the hands of people at the front line can change the world. The sad part for me is that most people at the front lines of healthcare don't believe that they can change the world. They think there are so many pressures pushing down on us, and there are many. I'm not minimizing that. But Absolutely, that's where big change starts in my estimation. At the bedside, one provider, one patient, one shift, opportunities abound. We did that work, got funded, reached out, wrote for a patient safety grant. ARC was just issuing matching grants. Dr. Pronovost had no idea, like I said, who I was. Interestingly, we got the funding. I had to convince then the president of the hospital association to let lots of hospitals join because the hospital association had never got involved in research before. And he said, well, how many hospitals do you need? And I said, well, we want at least 30, but I've put out the call and lots are saying they want to participate. And we started that work. And he came at one point and said, what do you do in the boardroom with all those hospital leaders? I said, excuse me? And he said, well, you have these meetings with them. What do you do in there? Because the boardroom is never full and people are never laughing and excited and happy and energized when they leave the boardroom, but they always are when you have these meetings. I say, I sit in the room and we talk about what we all care about and they learn from each other and then we go and do it. I think there's beauty in that. That's the whole networking capacity, sharing what we learn. We always say, take whatever I've done, use it, make it better, and then give it back. Tell us what you did that will improve what we started with because the opportunities to improve are just as endless as the opportunities to start. When we started doing the work at the Michigan Hospital Association, I sat in on a board meeting of the board of trustees of the hospital association and went over the work that we were doing. Way back then, you could look this up, there was a little video called Beyond Blame. It talked about some of the early work in patient safety. And the room got incredibly quiet. You could have heard a pin drop. And when we finished 
talking about the Keystone Center and patient safety and how to improve diagnosis, there was a board member, a gentleman who had been a longtime hospital president, and he was choked up. He was teary-eyed. And he said, I thought this only happened at my hospital. And I've never been able to talk about it. We've come a long way since then, but there were people in that room that were executives, CEOs of their hospitals who felt isolated as though they couldn't talk about the events that were happening in their hospital because they thought it meant bad care. When in fact, the whole idea of systemness and the idea of ways that we can improve healthcare systems to impact care delivery was pretty novel. That moment taught me that there is not an individual that you can meet who in their heart of hearts won't listen if you approach them where they are about the common thread. That's the way I have tried to motivate and move my research career, my research interests. People didn't jump up and down and say, great, you're on this NAM committee. Yeah, start this center. At a system quality meeting, I did an anonymous survey and asked people to respond to whether they thought diagnostic errors were happening in their area of care or whether they knew anyone who had suffered from a diagnostic error, mishap, late diagnosis. And the vast majority of people in the room absolutely had. It was their own data. So I've shared with the group, I think it's relevant here. My husband was diagnosed with AML leukemia in 2020. He himself is a physician. I'm a PT monk nurse. And the moment that happens to you and your family, all of that is stripped away. That's the first thing to go. Your professional identity, the fact that you're an insider in that space, that's the first thing to go. When we talk about patient-centered care, we're also talking about ourselves and our families and ourselves as providers. And being well for ourselves means being able to take care of our patients and families. And so this whole kind of cross-section, I think, is really important. And it goes back to the humanity of the experience and just the universal nature of the experience and the fact that we are not separated from those experiences as ourselves. Jess, I think that's such a critical point. I think I probably pride myself on being down to earth, casual, and boils down to know your audience. You need to talk research methodologies to methodologists because they're going to care about that stuff. Your scholarly approach to a differential diagnosis is really important for the right audience. But if you're talking to a patient and family about their role in the diagnostic process, you need to talk their language. You need to speak to what touches them, what they're bringing to the table to help the process along. And so when we talk about patient safety, we talk about diagnostic improvement, how can you even think about separating who the individual is from the process? That's a piece of what excited me about the work that we did at the National Academies because the very first meeting of that group, they brought in patients who told their story. I was sitting around a table with a bunch of people who are far smarter than I am and academically extremely accomplished, but I loved that we heard patient stories right out of the gate because that was level setting for everyone. That's what we were there for. And I hope and think that that showed up in some of our recommendations, but it's easy to lose that in the day-to-day -day pressures of how many patients are you seeing? What are you doing? How many scripts have you done? 
we could go on and on and on about the barriers that impact that bringing your humanity to the equation with patients. And yet it's so important. So how are you going to do that, Jess? This actually happened yesterday. I was at Mont Clinic yesterday, and one of my patients was just having a particularly hard day. He's a really, really cool kid, 11-year-old. He's kind of in the middle of his therapy right now for his cancer, and he was just having a bum day. I knew I was running behind. I took the extra minutes with him, and I started crying. I am now entering the spaces in a way that I'm going to be more vulnerable myself, and I'm choosing to kind of let go some of the shielding that I would put up to kind of get through the day. And it's made me feel like a better human and being a better human allows me to be present with my patients and families in a way that I think will help through this. We're going to stay in touch after this because we have too much common ground. I know. I mean, you've talked a lot about kind of your successes and positive aspects that have led to scaling up your projects. I do just want to get your opinion on some of the challenges you've encountered particularly within the implementation space and kind of how you've overcome that? Great question. Even the Keystone study that got so many accolades, I mean, there were barriers at every turn. We were out of the gate with really good work and all of a sudden had infection preventionists from around the country jumping on us. How dare you ICU docs and nurses take this on that you're going to reduce central line infections? We've been telling clinicians to do this for a long time and they just don't do it. And it was naivete on our part that we hadn't done a broad enough look at the literature to be as inclusive as we could be at the outset. So we did uh, mea culpas to the infection preventionists in our state and across the country and went on to have good relationships with them. So really doing your homework, and I say inviting into the tent people who have done similar work or reaching out to try and learn from them is an important lesson. We have some new people on our staff, and I'm really excited right now because they're delving into the small rural space. And as a researcher and as a nurse and as someone who looks at diagnostic opportunities, we often forget that most of healthcare is delivered in small and rural settings. And turning our head that direction to say, how can we help? Because those providers care just as deeply as we do. Those patients that deserve the same kind of care that our patients do but there are lots of barriers there, financial barriers, resource barriers, community barriers, you name it. One of the big things that we've been talking about as a group is the need for shared diagnostic language, how we have been taught about diagnosis in the nursing school context. I think about that, and we were always told, you are not there to make a diagnosis. You are there to offer both subjective and objective data to support the team and anticipatory guidance. But you yourself are not making the diagnosis. But I think that that has been devastating in some ways in terms of our ability to have a shared lexicon or a shared communication pathway within our diverse interdisciplinary teams. So I didn't know if you could reflect on either successes or challenges that you've had with leading these large interdisciplinary teams that certainly do include the patient at the center. And any thoughts you have on this notion of shared diagnostic language? As a nurse, I'm with you a thousand percent. I'm just this morning commenting to a colleague who's going to be working on an issue brief for ARC as part of this contract. And I said, we want to be really careful to not isolate nurses and nursing to nursing language because that's a barrier. 
the focus of this issue brief is going to be, I think, how pragmatically to address nurses' role in the diagnostic process. So how do you bring nurses on board to the fact that we absolutely have a role in the diagnostic process? We are not the final diagnostician, but we are in there from the beginning to the end. And physicians who see us in that role would never let us not be in that role ever again, because they begin to understand, PAs, that where their deficits are, we have strengths, and that Good diagnoses come when we've got as many voices at the table as we can get. Well, you highlight a push forward in terms of the synergy of what we bring and the fact that that is a beautiful puzzle piece of connectivity. And when you have the whole puzzle complete, that's what makes a safe and beneficial patient experience. When I went to Hopkins as faculty, when I left Michigan, my appointment was in the School of Medicine because I was working with physicians and that's the work that I was doing. And I got an appointment in the School of Nursing. There were people in the School of Nursing who wanted me to let go of my appointment in the School of Medicine. It's like, you're a nurse. You need to stand up and be proud of being a nurse. And it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. How do you think I got where I am? By being a nurse who can speak to physicians. And yeah, you're shaking your head and people can't see that, but there are still people who believe that way. So any time that we can collaborate, the whole idea of interprofessional training is so critically important. And someone who just got a huge national position in quality and safety said, you told me something once that never left me and I always took advantage of. And she said, you said, take your place at the table and don't apologize. Don't explain. Just take your place at the table. I think that's what nurses need to do is take our place at the table with physicians and respiratory therapists and PAs and families and patients and not apologize and not try to, I'll say, downplay our contributions, but jump right in with what we bring to the table because increasingly other people recognize the value. I know this might be hard to kind of distill down, but do you have any imparting advice to the scholars in terms of areas to consider or things to kind of make central within the way that we approach our own projects as we think about moving our own work forward? The response that I would have to give is to start where you are, is to not be your own worst enemy because we all are capable of doing that. And I'm going to say, don't be shy about reaching out to people as sounding boards for an idea or a thought, or if you're stuck on a particular phase of a project. I am mentoring someone now who was kind of silent for a while. And I reached out, said, you know, anything going on? And something significant was going on that they didn't want to share because they felt bad about it. And it's like, no, 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 no. If we believe in this balance thing and we believe in wanting to move our projects forward, then reach out to ask for help and then just one step forward. If it's four back, then it's five steps forward to make the next bit of progress. Dr. Chris Goshel, I wanted to thank you so much. This has been so fun. And really, I look forward to continuing this conversation when we get together in the larger group. I really think that this notion of remembering where you are and taking it one step and one day at a time is critical and something that we tend to overlook, I think, when we're thinking of the long-term picture. So those are all things that I know I'm going to kind of take and tuck away. But I just wanted to thank you so much. And this has been an amazing experience to get to chat with you. It has been an honor and a privilege. And now that you got me, you're never going to be rid of me. So stay in touch. Thank you. You're welcome. 